This morning we are looking uh, at one of the a number of uh, sermons we're going to do on various uh, cults and other religions. We've looked at Wicca, we've looked at the New Age movement. Today we're going to look at the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Now, just to make sure that you have the right view when you leave here today. This is not Pastor Paul standing up here and picking and railing on some other church. That is not it. Do I agree with him? No, I do not. That is not the purpose. When I was a youth leader many years ago, I found out that if you tell teenagers, oh, we're going to study doctrine, they kind of roll their eyes, go, kind of go half asleep. So what I determined a long time ago, and I did it about every three years when I was a youth leader, I would teach a series of lessons in, on, at, to youth group on cults, and I did it for a very sneaky purpose. They didn't even catch it. They didn't need to know. Because here's what happens. Most of us simply don't know what we believe. We know a little bit. We know we've trusted Christ. We know the Bible is the word of God. But if somebody asks us a question about doctrine, we don't know. But doctrine can be somewhat tedious. It can be a little boring at times. And so what I would do is teach a call. So we would get an outline of what somebody else believes. And then I would say, okay, now they teach this. Do you believe that? And if you don't believe that, how do you know? How would you answer them? And what we would actually do is it was a sneaky way of teaching doctrine. Now, I've already let you in on the secret because to me, that is the most important thing. You will not live confidently, nor will you minister confidently unless you first know what you believe. So rule number one, purpose number one for these sermons is so that you know what you believe about Jesus Christ, about the Bible, about the Christian life. But also, if you're going to minister confidently, you also, it also helps if you know what other people believe. You get an idea where they're coming from. And so if you know where someone is coming from, you won't let, spend a lot of time on things that are side issues that really don't matter. For example, with the Seventh-day Adventist church, to their plus, to their uh, 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 credit is what I'm looking for, to their credit, compared to most Protestant churches today, they're conservative. When it comes to things like the Word of God, they don't question and saying it's not the Word of God. When it comes to Jesus, he's not just another good man. When it comes to morals and ethics, uh, they believe the world was created in six days, and they believe abortion is wrong, and they believe that uh, gay marriage is wrong, and, you know, all those kinds of things. Very conservative. So when you look at it that way, to their credit, they do take a lot of things very, very seriously. They also take some things seriously that they shouldn't take seriously because it's against what the Word of God says. Now, so I want you to have confidence. If you go out of this auditorium this morning and say, I know what the Seventh-day Adventist church believes, and I work with one of them, and boy, am I going to blast them with the information I got today. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. That is not it at all. But if it makes you a tactful, knowledgeable, and confident minister of the truths of the Word of God, then you have accomplished it. If it has helped you to understand in even a greater way what you believe, then I've accomplished the purpose and you've gotten that purpose. Now, Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, notice in their name, Seventh Day. Let me ask a question. Answer out loud, please. The Sabbath is which day of the week? Saturday. Thank you. I grew up in a church, and many of you probably did too, that we worship on the Sabbath day, Sunday. Absolutely, totally wrong and false and unbiblical. Sabbath day has always been the seventh day of the week, the day of rest. It has never been the first day of the week. In fact, is the Seventh-day Adventist church, one of their big gripes is they say one of the popes back in the dark ages someplace switched the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday, and that was heretical, and so they have a big gripe about that. Well, they're right. I agree with them. The Sabbath day is Saturday. We do not worship on Saturday. That's not true. God tells us we're to worship every day. 
But we celebrate not the Sabbath, the end of the week, the day of rest. We celebrate the day of resurrection. So that's why we meet Sunday. By the way, I don't care if we meet Saturday or Friday or Wednesday. It doesn't matter. Because we're to worship him at all times. But we celebrate the first day of the week because we celebrate a finished work. We're not celebrating the old law, which did have the Sabbath day as a day of rest. But we're not there. And so they are seventh day. And indeed, they are not meeting to worship this morning. They met yesterday morning. And Adventists, they believe Christ is coming back. Guess what? So do I. Now, if you look at their eschatology, which is their future things, last days, uh, you will find out that they do not believe what I teach. Not even close. But they do believe that Christ is coming back. So they have it right in their name. And I wrote underneath there, remember the Sabbath, because that is the big thing. And I, I put a little quote there. So near, yet so far away. Because in so many ways, they do believe the Bible. And yet in other ways, they don't. Let's look at a little bit of history, and we'll do this rather quickly. William Miller started out as a Baptist. And uh, he was the one that was sort of the forerunner of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was not a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But William Miller got a little off track for a while. And he made a prediction He predicted that between March 21st of 1943 and March 21st of 1944, Christ would return. Guess what? It came and it didn't happen. And he goes, oh, a little bit like Harold Camping a few months ago where he predicted the world's going to end and all that. Okay, a little bit on that direction. And William Miller goes, You know what? I was wrong. Oh, by the way, I miscalculated. It's actually October 22nd, 1944. And when that didn't happen, it was now called in history the Great Disappointment. Because he was disillusioned along with a whole lot of other people that gathered together with him awaiting the return of Christ. It didn't happen. That's a false prophet. To his credit, he was wrong about this whole thing. But to his credit, he goes, I'm done with it. I was wrong. I was, I was delusioned, and, and he was wrong. I want nothing more to do with it. That's to his credit. At least you got to give him that. Unfortunately, there were others who didn't look at it that way. They said, oh, no, 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 no. William Miller was right, but only partly right. Because guys like Hiram Edson said, you know what? Christ did actually return. But he didn't return to earth. He, re- he went into the temple, the tabernacle, and started cleansing the temple and began the investigative judgment. And that is a word, a phrase that's going to come up over and over again here this morning because that is a huge part of the Seventh-day Adventist church that you may not hear on the surface, but it is absolutely a main powerful grip it has on people. And he said, nope, he didn't come back to earth, but he's cleansing the temple, and he began his investigative judgment. And he continued on, and there were others that followed that. And then along came Ellen G. White. She is the name attached to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She, along with her husband, started and began, her being the primary force, what we know as the Seventh-day Adventist Church as we know it today. And uh, she was already recognized as a prophetess. Um, In fact, is they believe that the history tells us that she had 2,200 visions, that at times that she would actually uh, go for hours without breathing while she had these visions. I don't believe that, but that's what history records. And she wrote 25 million words, volumes, of the desire of the ages, for example, or the great controversy between God and Satan. Those are two most famous ones that are still to this day the basis of a lot of the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, She wrote these things down, and uh, today they are still seen as authoritative in the Seventh-day Adventist church. One last thing about the history. The Jehovah, when you hear me talk about a few things up here, you go, 
I didn't know that about the Seventh-day Adventist church, but that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Well, that's, there's a reason for that. Because Charles Russell, the man who started the Seventh-day Adventist, I'm sorry, the Jehovah's Witnesses, he actually was a part of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, and he took it and went way beyond that. Because, see, the Seventh-day Adventist church is, as I wrote up there, so near, so far away, is because they do believe that Jesus Christ is God. They do believe in the Trinity. Most cults do not teach that. The Seventh-day Adventists just took some of the wrong doctrines and added other wrong doctrines and went way, way far away. They're not so near. They're much further away. And so as a background, you see a little bit there, and that's just a picture of her. What are the characteristics? Along with most other cults, they believe they are the remnant. It's us. We are the bright and shining light for the end of the world. Do they believe the world has come to an end? Yes, they do. Do they believe we're in the last days? Yes, they do. Do they believe that they have a message nobody else has for the last days? The answer is yes, as absolutely they do. They wouldn't say, oh, well, you're not a Christian. They would say, you got it all wrong, but they wouldn't say you're not a Christian. But they would say, but you don't have the whole story because we're the remnant church and we have Ellen G. Wright... Ellen G. White and her writings, and we have what the end of the world needs, and uh, you don't have that, and so we've got something you don't have. And as I said before, uh, Ellen G. White's writings are not seen as equal to the scriptures. We'll talk about this in a few moments again. They're not seen as inspired as the scriptures are. But they're seen as authoritative and they are seen as something that is necessary to understand the rest of the teachings of the Bible. And so uh, that's what they believe they have. We know what the Word of God says, that it is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God, the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The scriptures themselves teach us that the Bible is the final authority. All other writings, all other teachings, wherever you get them, from me, from anybody else, have to be seen in the light of the truths of the Word of God. Here's how most cults and other religions do this. Even a lot of other religions, even the ones that are non-Christian, give some due to the Word of God. But here's how it always goes, is they take their teachings, writings, whatever they happen to be, and they look at the Bible like this. And so they look at the Bible through the lens, through the scope, through the, the hue of their own teachings. And so if the Bible contradicts, they say, well, this one takes precedence. I don't care if you read Ellen G. Wright. Ellen G. White's writings. I'll get that out one of these times. Okay. But if you see them through the lens and the focus of the Word of God, you go, yeah, she said a lot of good things. And by the way, she did say a lot of good things. But here are some things she got totally wrong. How do I know that? Because the Word of God is the final and complete and only accurate and perfectly accurate standard. You get, I, I challenge you anytime, anything I say from up here, go check it out in the Bible. If I'm wrong, come and tell me. We may disagree. We may, you may un- misunderstand something. I may have misunderstood. That's okay. No, no problem with that. We have a standard. I am not the standard. Ellen G. White is not the standard. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is not the standard. We need to keep that in mind. What are the other characteristics? They believe that the Ten Commandments are binding for people of all ages. If I gave a quiz in here today, somebody, I hope you don't get offended by this, but if I gave a quiz in here today and I said, how do you know for sure if you're going to heaven? Most of you would say something, well, you need to believe in Jesus. And you would be right. And then you would add something else. Well, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. You would be wrong. Do we live under the Ten Commandments? The answer is no, we do not. We would not teach that, but a lot of people still believe that. They believe it's Jesus plus something else. The Seventh-day Adventist Church absolutely teaches it's Jesus plus something else. 
that's where the investigative judgment comes in, and we'll get back to that, as I said before. But part of that is keeping the Ten Commandments, and very specifically, the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They also, uh, about 35% of Seventh-day Adventists are convinced that you need to be a vegetarian. In fact, is I've, I've been there and I've read their books where they literally teach that if you eat meat, it messes with your head and you, you can't think spiritually straight. I'm serious about that. That's what some of their evangelists teach. And they also believe in tithing and a whole lot of other things that come from the Old Testament. By the way, some of you, if I ask you if tithing is a New Testament principle, you say yes, and you would be wrong on that one. I challenge you to show me in the Scripture. The New Testament principle is proportionate giving from an unreserved heart, which is a whole lot more than tithing. In fact, is by the time we're done here, you will realize that trying to keep the law of any sort is way, way, way too low of a standard. Our standard is hugely above the law. They believe that what you are doing this morning, sitting here worshiping on a Sunday morning, is not just wrong because you should be on the Sabbath day, but they believe it's literally the mark of the beast. It's not 666 or some other thing. It is Sunday observance or Sunday worship. And they literally believe that. In fact, is they, would, they wouldn't say you're not a Christian, but they'd say you're going to get rejected because you're worshiping on the wrong day and you have the mark of the beast. And I'm, that's, I'm not exaggerating that. That's the, what they teach. They do believe in the, uh, the return of Christ. And one thing that they desperately want, to believe, want people to believe is that they are just like any other denomination. Now, I think that's pretty stupid because most of the denominations have gone so far downhill. I want nothing to do with them because their morals and ethics and teachings and theology and everything is just so messed up. I wouldn't want much to do with it. And they want to be seen as a mainline denomination. And they do literally, uh, and I've seen this personally and uh, firsthand because I've worked with people in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the past, um, to, I have seen they have a public display of what they believe, and then once you become a part of it, you don't get the rest of this until you're initiated is not the right word, but until you're a part of it. I've been to their meetings, and I've listened, I listened to 30 hours of their tapes one time. I was painting a house and listened to 30 hours of their tape because I was working with some people that were in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and they gave me the tapes. And I said, okay, I'll listen to them. I'll tell you how it worked. I could preach the first half of almost every tape. It was biblical as could be. It was straightforward. It was bottom-line, fundamental stuff. No problem with it. And then about halfway through, because they, they actually teach, and I'll get back to this again, they teach that you're saved by grace through faith. And after you're saved, now your justification is based on your sanctification. They just turn it right upside down and say, okay, you got justified right with God by faith, but now you have to keep your justification by being sanctified, which means keeping the Ten Commandments and all, a whole bunch of other rules and regulations and worshiping on Saturday and all that kind of stuff. That's how it operates. And I saw it over and over and over and over again. That's, that's what they actually teach. But they do want to see, be seen as a regular church. And I believe very strongly, and there are others who are experts who don't see it the way I do, but I believe I can show you very easily what the Word of God says and why it doesn't compare. So let's look at the, some of the doctrinal problems. The first one you always look at is what is their final authority? I don't care if it's me. I don't care if it's you. I don't care if it's the SDA. I don't care who it is. What is the final authority? Is it the Bible and only the Bible, or is something added to it? By the way, there's nothing wrong with teaching and, all, and preaching and all those things. My job, or any other teacher or preacher, is simply to help you to understand what the Scripture says. Not to add from it, or add to it, or take from it. Just to help you understand it. Hopefully I've done additional study and research and things like that that can put it all together and make it all make good, solid sense so you can apply it to your life. That's our job as preachers and teachers and, and other in, educators in, in Christian things. 
But when you add to the Bible and what they believe as the remnant church, they have some information for the end of the age that no other church has, and that is the person of Ellen G. White and her writings. And um, just to point out, you'll see there's a little 18 up there. That's not a mistake. You're going to see that on a number of my slides because, and you want to check any of this stuff out, it's real easy to do. Go on your computer, type in SDA, punch it, go to their official website, and I believe they have 28 items that are sort of the standard items that they believe. Some of them are about the Trinity. That one, I could... I could sign on that one. And about the, the, who Jesus Christ is, I could sign on that one. Lots of them, I could agree with them 100%. But then you get to like 18, and this is just a part of that. I, I don't have space to put the whole thing up. But they believe in the gift of prophecy. Well, here's what that comes out to. It is the identifying mark of the remnant church. So I'm not making these terms up. But they say that gift of prophecy is the identifying mark of the remnant church, and that person that is that identity is Ellen G. White. She is the Lord's messenger. Her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth. Notice, it is not simply authoritative, so maybe that was in the past, but a continuing. That means that if you are going to be who God wants you to be, you have to, at minimum, consider her teachings. And I'll guarantee you, and just like any other denomination or any other cult there, the conservative and liberals, you get to the ones that are really, really conservative, they put her writings pretty much equal with Scripture. On the other side, they just say, well, it's authoritative, but it's not inspired. But some will actually say that indeed, and I just have quotes from some of their, their teachers, her writings contain inspired counsel, for example. Uh, that her writings are in harmony with all of Scripture. There are no contradictions within them. These are special truths for this time. And so you have to have it. And it is indeed authoritative and continues on. There is one particular verse, and if you turn to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, that is the particular verse that they use to prove that Ellen G. White is the spirit of prophecy. Now, when you look at this verse, unless you're blind, I cannot find anything that has to do with Ellen G. White or any other single person in this world except for one. Because it is so clear. But this is the verse that they use. And they, they, they rely very heavily on it. It says in Revelation chapter 19 verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This is the Apostle John writing. And then it ends with this. The, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I'm going to tell you, the spirit of prophecy is not Ellen G. White. That is very clear from this verse. But look at exactly what it says. It says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So let's look at the word testimony. The word testimony is the word martyr, a witness. A martyr is someone who has firsthand information and says, this is this is story A, I'm sticking to it, there is no plan B. There is no uh, other alternative way to look at this. I saw it firsthand. I know it to be true. So it is the things that are true about Jesus, his writings, his life, that are the testimony we're looking at. They're authoritative. It's based on the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ and only his. And then it says, is the spirit. You go, spirit, that's the word for breath or wind. You go, why does it say the, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy? Spirit is kind of something you don't see, you, 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 but you can feel the effects of it. In fact, as we have about 15 people today who are either in or heading for Alabama who are dealing directly with the effects of wind, in that case a tornado. Sure, you can't see it, but it sure has a big effect because when the wind blows, things move. And in that case, lots of things moved and totally destroyed houses and trees and everything else. 
And all it's saying here is if you want to find out what the spirit of prophecy is and where the power is, it's the testimony of Jesus. You want to find out who the authoritative source is? It's not Ellen G. White. It is Jesus himself. And prophecy is not simply things foretold for the future, but it's forthtelling. It's both of those. Even the Old Testament prophets, some of the things that they said and prophesied were happening as they spoke. And some things haven't even happened yet, but we see, you know, heading that direction. And so what it comes down to, the, the gift of prophecy, and in their case, the spirit of prophecy, as they call her, uh, has nothing to do with this passage. In fact, is there is no passage that tells us to look for another prophet. In fact, is places like in Hebrews, it says, hold on a second, in the last days, in the, in the, in the past, Jesus, uh, God had spoken in many different ways through prophets and other assorted ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. Jesus Christ is the focus. And uh, so you, you need to simply reject that whole thing. In fact, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it makes us clear that there was prophecy. And it was in part. But it says when the perfect, and that is a neutral term, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Folks, this word is final and complete and perfectly accurate. Anything that gets added to this simply muddies the water at best or is heretical. That's just the way it has to be. In fact is, if prophets were still giving prophecy from God, directly from God, you better have a whole bunch of white pages in the back here and you better start writing things down. But God is no longer adding to his word. Makes it very clear in the end of the book of Revelation. Don't add to it and don't take away from it. Unfortunately, Almost all the cults do exactly that. They have someone or some group of people that they add to the Word of God. The Word of God itself says, nope, when the perfect has come, when the Word of God, the revelation that God has for us is complete, we don't need prophets anymore. We simply need people to teach what He has already told us. That's what we attempt to do. Because the Scripture that is inspired by God is adequate to equip us for every task. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. But I need to move on because I want to look at a few other things. I promised you that this investigative judgment is a really big point. It is the big crowbar, the big hammer over the head. I would compare it with purgatory with the Roman Catholic Church. Because purgatory simply says, well, yeah, we believe Jesus died for your sins and he's the one that forgives. But you know what? You still have to have them purged or burned away in this case and it's like okay you better you better you know keep straight or you're going to be in purgatory for a long time in this case it's a little bit different investigative judgment is this and as i said before in 1844 they believe jesus went in started cleansing the temple and began his investigative judgment to make a long story short i'll try to uh make it as short as possible. It's number 23 on on their website. It simply says, in the last phase of his atoning ministry, got to tell you something, folks, the finished work was on the cross, on the cross, on the cross, on the cross, period. He is not continuing his atoning work. That's one, number one. The investigative judgment, and there's a whole lot of other things that go in between there, but here's what happens. It's Jesus is in the tabernacle, and when he comes across your name, oh, you've trusted Christ by faith. But you notice I put an underline right here. See that? Faith in Jesus and the commandments of God. That's important because that's faith and works, and that's exactly how it is. Your name wouldn't even show up if you hadn't trusted Christ. But if you're not keeping the Ten Commandments, oh, you got the mark of the beast on you. you. You're eating the wrong food. You just ate some pork last week. Whatever it happens to be, you get X'd out. You're considered unworthy, and you, as it says, are not ready for translation into his everlasting kingdom. That's an ongoing work, and by the way, you do not know when your name is coming up. It is a 
fear tactic. Remember, what Christ has done for us is absolutely out of pure love. It is pure grace, and it's all of faith. There is nothing else I can add to it. The Word of God is clear. The passage that I gave you earlier uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm not going to quote it for you. You can read it for yourself right there. But it says, the letter, those things written on stone bring condemnation and they kill. They bring death. But that is not what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has given us something better than that. In fact, is the ministry according to the Word of God, that Jesus Christ is performing today in heaven is not investigative judgment. It is very, very different from that. He is not continuing His atoning ministry, but here is what He is actually doing. According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says in verse 5 there, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What is he doing? He is mediating the work that he has already completed. He is working on it. He's continuing to uh, be that go-between. Here's what happens. You, like I, we sin. We fail. We're disobedient. We're not living by faith, whatever it is. Satan comes along, and we know this from the Scripture, and says, did you see Paul Moffat? Did you see the stupid, boneheaded, dumb thing he did? Sinful thing he did. God, you need to condemn him. And Jesus comes over and says, guess what? Look at my hands. Look at my side. I died. I shed my blood for him. He's covered. He mediates on my behalf. But it doesn't stop there. Because when you go to 1 John chapter 2, it says that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. He's advocating on our behalf. The word advocate is a counselor, or we would say a lawyer, an attorney. He's our attorney, representing our case. What's our case? We've trusted Christ. See, this is all by faith. Not faith and keeping some commandments, whatever they happen to be. It is, he is representing me before God the Father. But it doesn't stop there in Hebrews chapter 7. It says, in verse 24, it says that he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Notice, he and only he is the one that's able to save us forever. It's not faith in Jesus Christ plus keeping some commandments. We'll talk about the commandments here in a moment. But it's none of those things. It is the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and very specifically His death and shedding of His blood for our sins that saves us forever. Investigative judgment says, if you don't toe the line, you can lose your salvation. Now, lots of people teach a version of that. Almost every denomination teaches some version of that. Only when you believe exactly what God says... When it says Jesus Christ said it was finished, it is finished. There's nothing else that can be done. You see, when I trust Christ as my Savior, when you trust Christ as your Savior, it's not just He adds something temporary to you that you can lose again. But it makes it clear that He adds to us, credits to our account, the righteousness of God. We are born again. We become children of God. There's a total, complete transformation in our lives. Something we never had, never could have, never could keep on our own. He gave to me. It's added to my life. That's what Jesus Christ has done. Any system, I don't care what the name happens to be on it, any system that says that there's something you can do to add to your salvation or to keep your salvation, in their case it's to keep your salvation, is wrong. Because what do you add to the perfect righteousness of God? You add nothing. You simply live it out, which is what the book of James tells us to do. You know, live out your faith by your works. But it's not work to keep saved. It's not work to get saved. It's work because I am saved. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. In fact, is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse, <clears throat> excuse me, 
uh, verse 3 and 4, it says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become a much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. These are aristans. It means they were once and done. It is finished. He sat down. Remember, in the tabernacle are no seats, no benches, no place to sit down, no place to relax. Why? Because the work was never done. There was a continual sacrifice. But when Jesus Christ finished his work, he sat down because guess what? Everything was taken care of. Are we to live in the light of that and to live holy lives? Absolutely. We'll get to that in a moment. But the the investigative judgment is simply a fear tactic He loves us, and that is why we serve him. Not because of fear, not because we might get judged. And by the way, just a side issue, do we have a judgment for those that have trusted Christ? The answer is yes, we do. Absolutely do. You have to answer for the deeds you've done in your body. You can find it in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and also 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you can find that, yes, we do. But it's not a matter of, do I keep my salvation or not? It's a matter of, do I have a reward or loss of reward? Very, very different. But yes, there is a judgment. We do have to give accountability for our lives. They also teach some other things. They teach that man does not have an immortal soul. They teach that God alone is immortal. What they really mean, and it's a theological jumble here, God is eternal. You are not. Why? Why do I say that? God is immortal, by the way, also. But there's a difference between God and you. See, you had a beginning. There was a sperm and an egg that came together at one time, and that was your beginning. You did not exist before that. God did not have a beginning in that way. He is eternal past, future, present. He is present everywhere all the time. So God is different than we are. But when we were born, when we were conceived, we now have a life that continues on forever. They teach that when you die, and they quote from the book of Ecclesiastes. They like that, and and unfortunately that's all ripped out of context because Ecclesiastes is life under the sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N. And so it's vanity and futility and emptiness and all those kinds of things. And basically, and it does say, you know, like a dead dog and the dead know nothing. Well, that's from a worldly point of view. Not from God's point of view, a worldly point of view. You got to look at the context of these things. And so, indeed, but they take that and say, okay, when you die, you're done. You're in the grave. Spirit, soul, and body. They don't even believe that. But the word of God is very clear that, indeed, we are tripart. We have a spirit, we have a soul, and we have a body. The New Testament and the Old Testament both teach that. For example, when Rachel died in Genesis chapter 38, it says and she, uh, her spirit departed and she died. I'm, I'm sorry, not her spirit. Her soul departed and she died. And then the next phrase is, and they buried her. Something already left, and they buried what was left. That's what they do. When I do a funeral, I say, Grandpa isn't here. Grandma isn't here. Their body is here, and we're going to put it in the ground in a short while. But their soul and spirit are already gone. The fact is, in the New Testament, in James chapter 2, it says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so is faith without works. It is possible. We are not just simply one. We are a unit, just like the Trinity, but it can be separated. And that soul and spirit are immortal. Our bodies need the resurrection life, and that's a whole other subject. But the truth is, they teach that we are in an unconscious state between the time we die and the resurrection. All depends which resurrection you're a part of, according to them. And in that state, uh, you really know nothing. Uh, They don't like the word soul sleep, but that's really what it is. Um, The soul is, is gone. It's not resurrection. It has to be recreation, and that's a whole other subject also. I've got way too many things to cover here. But the, the point is this. They don't believe about man what the, the Bible teaches, and on top of that, there's one other thing. They do not believe in eternal punishment. The Word of God is very clear 
that there is eternal reward and there is also eternal punishment. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, it says, and these go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the word eternal is exactly the same word both places. So if there is an eternal life, heaven, for those that have trusted Christ, there is an eternal punishment for those who haven't. They believe in annihilation of the wicked. They take a word from the scripture that does not mean to go into nothing. It means to utterly destroy. But it doesn't mean to go into nothing. And they say, eventually, all those that haven't trusted Christ, they basically go to nothing. They're annihilated. The scripture does not teach that. I have to tell you, the scripture has a real scary teaching. It says, if you reject Christ up until the end, you will pay for eternity in torment. In fact, is the book of Revelation says that the, their torment goes on in the lake of fire forever, day and night, forever and ever. We do that in English too, don't we? We want to emphasize something? Their torment goes on day and night forever. That's, that's close enough, right? But God wants to make clear nobody mistakes it. And ever. You know, that's, that's what God says. I didn't make that up. That's what God says. But they teach that the wicked are annihilated. They get, basically go into non-existence. The word of God absolutely will have none of that. That is not part of what the scriptures teach. Now, the last one, and I have about five minutes, so this will be really quick. But they believe that the Ten Commandments are binding upon all people. And by the way, they divide up uh, the Old Testament law. They say some of you have to abide by, some you don't. Uh, the scriptures will not allow that either. You take it all or nothing. But they believe that the, the Ten Commandments are binding on all people of every age. And it is the basis of God's covenant and it's the standard of God's judgment. Absolutely not true. First of all, the, the Ten Commandments were binding on the children of Israel, not on the church. Jesus died and fulfilled the law. It was fulfilled. It's been dealt with. In fact, the people that believe that we have to keep the Ten Commandments either to get saved or to stay saved, your standard's too low. You're living substandard. Wow. I thought the Ten Commandments are a big deal. Oh, yeah, they are. They show us that we're sinful. They show us that God is holy. They make it clear to us that you cannot be, you're not able to please God on your own. That's what they do. They do a lot of other things besides that. But the standard's too low. See, in the law, in the Ten Commandments, it says, thou shalt not kill. In the church age, the age of the Spirit, where we have a new covenant, it says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Under the law, it says, if you commit adultery, that's worthy of death. In the New Testament, it says, if I have lust in my heart, I've committed adultery already. The standard is much higher. The Old Testament says, thou shalt not steal. The New Testament says, if I covet. I'm an idolater, an idol worshiper, if I steal. Wow, the standard is much higher. So if you think keeping the law is going to please God, and, and one of the things that they absolutely say is, well, we, 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 we know the law is, is not how we get saved, but we keep the law because it shows we love God. I propose to you that's a very low form of love because God says you're to live by faith. And that has to do with my mindset, my motives, and everything else. Because the standard we live under is much above that. The law simply says, don't hurt your neighbor. Do what is right toward God. The instruction to the New Testament church is, not only don't hurt your neighbor, but you need to do good to your neighbor. In fact, there's a vestige of that in the Old Testament, where it does say, love your neighbor as yourself. But the New Testament emphasizes that it's not just don't do harm. You have an obligation to love your neighbor as yourself. It's much, 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 much higher. And it's not just offer the right sacrifices and kind of have a right attitude. It's, no, I worship from the heart when I worship God. I give from the heart. I don't simply give a tithe. I give from the heart. I give above and beyond. I give unrestrained. 
The English word hilarious comes from a God loveth a cheerful giver. The word hilarious comes from that. Unrestrained. It's a belly laugh. It's not just ha-ha. It's a belly laugh. Unrestrained. That's how he wants us to live. Our standard today is way above the law. The law is the bottom line standard. It's the lowest common denominator. Not a bad thing because the New Testament makes very clear. It's holy, good, and righteous. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's not what we live by. And notice it also, their, their number 19 says it's the basis of God's covenant. That's not true. The basis of God's covenant is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, not the law. And it also says it's the standard of God's judgment. And I've just told you the standard of God's judgment today is not keeping the law. It is the spirit that's way above the law. He judges the intents and the motives of our hearts. That's what he does. The standard, while they believe it's a high standard, and probably for most people it's a, it, it is a high standard, but it's not God's standard. But it goes on, and just one more thing about the Sabbath, because that goes along with the law. But it was in, they, in, he, they teach that it instituted the Sabbath for all people, and it requires the observance of the, the seventh-day Sabbath as a day of rest, worship, and ministry. I will tell you that the Old Testament never said it's a day of worship. That's what they teach, but that's not what it says. It was a day of rest. Which day did they worship on? Every day, just like we are. They offered sacrifices at the temple or the tabernacle every day. Remember, the priests never got to sit down. They didn't get a day off. They had to go in rotations or they would have gotten worn out. They retired at 50 because it was that. Can you imagine the gruesomeness of all day long slitting animals' throats? I can't imagine what that looked like. I can't imagine what it did to your head after a while of bringing sinful people to a holy God. I mean, horrible. That's all done. We, we're not there anymore. But the Sabbath never was for all people. It was assigned to his people, his chosen people, Israel. The Seventh-day Adventist church believes they are spiritual Israel. Lots of other churches teach that too. Totally wrong, but they, they teach that. The truth is, we're not spiritual Israel. God is still going to deal with Israel, still dealing with Israel. And during the millennium, he's going to deal with them for a thousand years. In fact, is during the tribulation, he's going to judge them for about half of that before he can bless them in the millennium and fulfill every promise that he's ever given to them as a nation. And indeed, he will do that. Just to close, one illustration dealing with the law. Many years ago, I was uh, dealing with a, a couple of couples who had gotten into the uh, Seventh-day Adventist church, and they started having questions because they were being told some very legalistic things that they didn't understand anymore. And um, finally, they talked to me. I spent a lot of hours into the long hours of the morning, but I remember sitting down and meeting with two couples, and they said, can we bring our Sunday school teacher with us? And this guy was like 80 years old. He must have been their premier Sunday school teacher because they respected him highly. And I said, sure. You've got to understand, I'm a young pastor. I think I know everything. I had done my homework. I had read a lot of Seventh-day Adventist literature and listened to a lot of their tapes by that time. So I kind of knew where they were coming from, and I knew what I believed. And this guy came, and he wouldn't let me talk. He just cut me off and kept talking and talking and talking. And finally, I, I, I was kind of getting frustrated. I admit that. In fact, is I, I got so frustrated by the time it was done that night, I just put my head down on the table and said, Lord, I don't know where to go from here, but, so you better show me. Uh, that, that was all I, could, all I knew to do at that point. But he went and made a statement because he was trying to insist that we have to keep the Ten Commandments, and particularly the Sabbath day. He said, Adam and Eve kept the Sabbath. I said, show me in the Bible. Because he had said he believed the Bible. I said, show me in the Bible. And he tried to change the subject. No, he didn't try. He changed the subject. I left him talk for about a minute. I said, hold a second. You didn't, uh, excuse me, but you didn't answer my question. You said Adam and Eve kept the Sabbath, and it was pretty much a commandment that they need to do that. He ignored me again and started on another subject. And I have two other couples here who I don't know what they believe at this point because they were confused. And I'm like, oh, 
where's this going, man? This is, this is not what I wanted to happen. I wanted truth so they could make good decisions. And I'm like, this looks like an argument. It's a standoff. So once more, I said, hold on a second. I'll talk about those other subjects, but show me in the Bible where Adam and Eve kept the Sabbath. And I didn't know where to go from there. That's when I put my head down. And finally, one of the other guys said, look, he asked you a question, a straightforward question. You made a dogmatic statement. Show, him in the, show us in the scripture where Adam and Eve kept the commandments. He goes like this. Oh, it's time for me to leave. And I'm not joking. That's the story. You know what? Here's what happened. And I, I can tell you the only way I know to deal with this, and this is what I want to challenge you. So you end with not Seventh-day Adventist stuff. But what's the challenge to you? Do you really know what you believe about theology? Can you answer someone who needs an answer? If you can't, get in the Bible. You don't have to be a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. Just get in the Bible and study it. That's what I did long, long before I was a pastor. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I didn't have devotions. Sometimes I would be on one verse for two weeks until I finally got it straight. You know about what I'm talking about, Craig? You know, I, I, I just, I had to keep studying, 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 because I want to know what it is. That's not just devotion. By the way, I'm not anti-devotions at all. Please have your devotions. But I challenge you, study, so that you know, so you can be confident, so you can help someone else who's caught up in whatever their own thoughts, a, a call, whatever it is, so you can help them, so you can be confident. I challenge you in that direction. We need to know what is true, and we need to be able to express it. And I hope that you would have that confidence in yourself. That's what I want you to know as you leave here, that you can have that confidence in what Jesus Christ says. And so you can minister to others with that same confidence that you have in your own life. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Father, we've uh, covered a lot of territory and we've kind of hit the, the top issues and only the top issues. But Father, I pray that indeed we would have confidence in our spiritual lives so that we would grow and become strong in the faith strong in the Lord and the power of his, his might and through His Word, that we would be able to use the sword of the Spirit in our own lives first, that we'd have a confident Christian life. But then, Lord, I pray that we would have confidence in ministering to others, not so much because we know what they believe, but because we know what we believe and are able to see what is truth and what is error that we would be able to show from the scriptures what you have said and what indeed is the final authority. Lord, help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Live by grace, by faith, on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for it all through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless. Go with God.